Hello, in this week's show, how drones are proving their worth in humanitarian emergencies, worrying data on diabetes and COVID-19, the latest from the Belarus-Poland border, and news from the COP26 climate summit. Stay with us too for closing comments from the show's regular guest, Solange Behetegui-Cortez. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. Thanks for listening. First, the news. The announcement by China and the United States that they've pledged to work together to cut harmful emissions this decade has been welcomed by UN Chief Antonio Guterres. Reacting to the surprise declaration on Wednesday by the two top economies, the UN Secretary-General said that tackling the climate crisis requires international cooperation and solidarity, and that this is an important step in the right direction. His comments came after China's climate envoy Xi Shenhua and his counterpart from the US, John Kerry, told reporters that their countries would work together to meet the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate, including by sharing technological expertise. Speaking in Glasgow, Mr Guterres urged all countries to show greater ambition on climate action, specifically on mitigation, adaptation and finance. They shouldn't settle for the lowest common denominator, he said, adding that promises ring hollow when the fossil fuels industry still receives trillions in subsidies. UN humanitarians have reached people stranded on the Belarus-Poland border. In a tweet on Thursday, the head of the UN refugee agency, Filippo Grandi, said that the priority was to prevent loss of life and move people to safer locations in Belarus. Mr Grandi welcomed the access granted to aid teams from his agency and from the International Organisation for Migration, adding that his agency UNHCR stood ready to help find solutions to the crisis, which has seen large numbers of migrants and asylum seekers mass at the frontier between the two countries. On Wednesday, UN Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet issued an appeal for immediate humanitarian access to the migrants after she described the situation as intolerable. Amid plunging winter temperatures and reports that a child had died, the High Commissioner for Human Rights said that hundreds of men, women and children must not be forced to spend another night in freezing weather without adequate shelter, food, water and medical care. Covid news now and a warning that there could be a global shortage of syringes to inject vaccines against coronavirus and other preventable diseases. Based on a scenario where around 7 billion people need two doses of coronavirus vaccine between now and 2023, the UN Health Agency said that a shortage of at least 1 billion syringes could occur if manufacturing does not pick up. Lisa Hedman, World Health Organization's senior advisor from the Access to Medicines and Health Products Division, warned that a generation of children might miss scheduled immunization jabs. A shortage of syringes is unfortunately a real possibility, and, and here's some more numbers. With the global manufacturing capacity of around $6 billion per year for immunization syringes, it's pretty clear that a deficit in 2022 of over a billion could happen if we continue with business as usual. In a related story, the WHO said that diabetics in Africa are four times more likely to die from COVID-19 than those who do not have the disease. It follows analysis of data from 13 countries on the African continent, where there was a more than 10% fatality rate among patients with diabetes and the coronavirus, compared with a 2.5% rate for COVID-19 patients overall. Diabetes impairs our ability to produce or process insulin, which is needed to prevent a dangerous rise in blood sugar. The disease causes inflammation and poor blood circulation, which increase the risk of complications, including death from COVID-19. An estimated 24 million people live with diabetes in Africa today, and this number is expected to nearly double by 2045. The headlines there, and you're listening to UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. 
Now to this week's interview, which takes us to Mozambique, which is where Patrick McKay from the UN World Food Programme joins us on his lunch break. Patrick is an expert in drone technology and he's been conducting a barrage of tests to see how these flying machines can help in humanitarian emergencies. For instance, by identifying people stranded in flash floods or by relaying internet access to stranded communities. So Patrick, thanks for joining us from Southern Africa today and giving up your break. I am sorry about that. I was just mentioning some of the ways that drones can help, but perhaps you could give us some specific examples of what you're working on right now and why the humanitarian community thinks it's such an important development. Uh, thanks. Thanks for the great introduction. I think you've covered quite a lot. So we're in Mozambique at the moment uh, for what is the largest drone-based search and rescue activity sort of ever undertaken. We've got 40 drones with us. We've got people from sort of really high-ranking uh, search and rescue institutions. We've got the Institute of Search and Rescue. Uh, we've got the UK International Search and Rescue Team with us. Uh, we've got somebody from the Portuguese National Guard. Their chief drone pilot is here, as well as the University of Portsmouth, who's actually doing an academic study on the work, on the effectiveness of drones uh, for search and rescue. And we're linking up with Esri, the GIS company, that's going to be building a machine learning model uh, purely for search and rescue in future emergencies. And uh, what we're hoping to do is find out the best ways to use the specific types of drones for search and rescue. We've got drones that are the typical type of drone you'd see, you know, your wedding photographer might be using. We've got drones that have got thermal cameras on board. We've got drones that are fixed wing. They can fly long distances. And uh, VTOL drones take off vertically and land vertically, but fly even further. And we are going to be testing a, a number of different theories uh, and hoping to produce not only an academic study, but also a set of standard operating procedure documents. And what this will do is in future emergencies, it'll guide the people on the ground on how to best use the equipment they've got on hand available to them immediately. Staying with Mozambique, because we've covered the flooding a couple of years ago, was this drone technology used then? How might it be used in future? What's the prognosis and, and the likelihood that it's going to be up and running pretty soon? So Cyclone Ida was actually the first official activation of drones by WFP. And uh, we did a number of different activities, but the two primary activities were the search and rescue. We had uh, boats going up the Boozy River, which was causing the flooding, and we had to put an eye in the sky to be able to see over obstacles and over, uh, over trees, etc., so we could figure out where people were that needed rescue and where they, you know, which places were clear. We also did search and rescue from vehicles. When you get to a flooded bridge, you know, the drones can go quite a few kilometers down further to go and inspect the villages there. The other major task we did was mapping. And what this means is that we can go to an area that's been affected by flooding or by a cyclone, and we can map it out in such high detail that somebody like your UNICEFs could go and inspect the schools virtually without having to go there. And WHO could go and inspect the clinics sort of perfectly. The resolution, I always joke, the resolution is so high. If you dropped your keys that day and you had enough patients, you'd be able to find them on the map. Now, that's, that's all sort of post-disaster work. But what we try and do is we try and be ready for emergencies before they arrive. So about three weeks ago, we've just come back from the Boozy River, which is the one that caused all the flooding during Idai. And we've created sort of the highest resolution flood bubbles uh, for the area that they've, they've had. And what this tells us is it tells us which households are going to be affected depending on the water level in future. Which uh, so houses, we'll did know. you say? You, you can be specific about which particular uh, residences can be potentially flooded? Yes, so we can actually tell exactly which part of the community we need to evacuate first, because obviously you want to focus on the people that are most at risk. We also know where we can take them to, which areas are safe, where we should look for survivors. Uh, survivors are often found in places where there's you know, an island built up and surrounded by waters. So we need to head out there. So we've done all of this work before the time. So if we had to have another cyclone, Idai, 
we'd be able to react much faster with a much more targeted sort of approach because we know exactly where the water is going to go. And can we just maybe talk about how secure they are? Because I can see the benefits for the humanitarian, the aid teams, but for those on the ground, you know, there's perhaps a bit of mistrust about what these things are floating in the sky. We hear about drone attacks quite frequently. How do you convince a community that they are there for their benefit? So one of the key things we actually do is we work with, uh, with the local government. So our primary partner in Mozambique is the Mozambican National Disaster Management Agency. And we've been building their capacity since uh, 2017, since before Cyclone Adai hit. Um, so when the Cyclone arrived, they were already on the ground with the drones. We went to go and support them. They've got people in every single community, so they go and sort of uh, sensitize the community on what's going to be going on. We try our best to link up with government in sort of all circumstances, just so that we make sure that we are firstly coordinated. We don't want to send two drones over the same area, but also secondly, that the community knows who we are, who we're working with and what we have to do. And you don't use them in conflict scenarios because presumably that data no. would be far too sensitive. Absolutely. So at the moment, we, we just avoid conflict areas as a rule. We'd rather not sort of uh, make, uh, make the work a lot harder or a lot more suspicious than it needs to be. So there's enough need for drones in non-conflict areas and we're focusing on those at the moment. Can you maybe tell me about some of the bigger drones? You've got these blimps, I think uh, you referred to them. What are they used for yeah. in terms of internet communications and connectivity? That's right. So we use drones for two main purposes uh, sort of in our area. So the one is obviously the data collection, which I've been talking about. And the other is to provide connectivity. So for our connectivity, we've got two types of drones that do that. Uh, the first one is a tethered drone. So it's got a cable, an electrical cable, which runs from the drone all the way to the ground. And what it means is that drone can stay in the air 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at 90 meters altitude nonstop. And we use it basically as a cell phone tower that you can pack up into two suitcases. So when you arrive in a location that's been flattened by a hurricane or a cyclone and there's no communications anywhere, we can, we can use the satellite to bring the communications down and then we can set up this tethered drone to spread the network over the location that we need to work in. The other type is a more interesting one. So for the tethered drone, we primarily look at the community sort of quite close to the drone, but also for the responders covering the city. The other type of drone is a blimp. It's an airship. It's about 15 meters long, three and a half meters across. And what this does is it carries Wi-Fi for the community and it flies in a grid over the city. And anyone within a kilometer of this blimp can actually connect and get onto the internet. So everybody in the city should potentially have up to about an hour of coverage a day. And if you look at how we typically operate in, in emergencies, the responders have got internet, but often the, the entire city is offline for three weeks. You know, And I've had people come to me and say, can you please tell my family I'm alive? Because nobody knows. So the idea behind the blimp is to send a Wi-Fi hotspot, a very powerful Wi-Fi hotspot floating over the city, connecting people in a, a 3.2 square kilometer area underneath it. Um, a couple of times a day. So you can send all your messages, you can receive your messages, and when the blimp comes back, you can send your responses. And by doing that, we can reach the entire city pretty much every day for a period. Great. And last question, how much does it all cost? I think that's really the key issue, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it, it does. There is the cost. I mean, if we look at the, the cost of our data collection drones, our most advanced ones at the moment are about $25,000. But when you think that uh, one of our MI-8 helicopters costs us, you know, two and a half, nearly $3,000 to fly for one hour, if we can replace the use of helicopters in the search phase of search and rescue for even, you know, 10 hours, we've paid for that drone. So long term, I'd like to see drones doing all of the searching for the search and rescue flights, for doing long range assessments to go and inspect villages in the distance and to... Uh, 
be able to use the helicopters purely for the rescue phases where they can do the most value or to deliver food or aid. So that's our goal. My thanks to Patrick McKay from the World Food Programme who is busy flying drones somewhere in Mozambique and we will hopefully catch up with him again soon. With his comments fresh in our minds, I've got Solange Peltegui-Cortez to give us some closing comments. Hi Solange. Hola Daniel. Your interview with uh, Patrick McKay brought me back to Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, whose full title is in fact Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. In Greek mythology, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to humanity in the form of technology. His good intentions backfired, excuse the, the pun, and his action was punished by the wrath of Zeus. Victor Frankenstein, the main character in Shelley's novel, is a modern Prometheus. It is important to stress that the monster was born innocent. It was only later than he learned to be evil. In the real world, in Mozambique today, the World Food Program is training drones to detect buildings which are in danger of flooding. Like Frankenstein, a drone is an artificial creature. It is neither good nor bad in itself. What can be good or bad is the way the drone is used. A drone combined with artificial intelligence can learn, for example, to quickly quantify the number of houses partially or completely destroyed by a cyclone and identify people stranded by rising water. The way we use technology will define our future. And as we heard from Patrick McKay, WFP is using drones in non-conflict areas and with two objectives, to provide connectivity and data collection. The question is, what do we do with all this information? As artificial intelligence and machine learning continues to advance, we must teach the machines to be on the side of life. For this, the creators and users themselves must work ethically to minimize possible monstrous effects, which is what WFP is doing. The World Food Programme is indeed doing all it can to help people and doing all the preparedness that it can to help people in emergencies. And my mind goes back to the Mozambique flooding that Patrick McCade spoke about briefly there, where I remember there were families stuck in trees because the waters were so high. And this is exactly what the drones are going to do. Listen, time's against us, Solange. So thank you once again for your input, for your thoughts. Thank you, listeners, for being part of this show and following the UN's work on UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. We'll be back next week, of course. But don't forget, for more headlines, stories and interviews, check out the UN News main page or indeed its audio hub. That's it then. Bye-bye for now. Ciao, Daniel. Hasta el próximo viernes.